Hey guys, Charles here. I just wanted to give you a heads up before this episode starts. We had a lot of technical difficulties with our mics and our internet connection, so we had to cut a lot of this episode together. So we do apologize for some of our mics cutting out with certain words. We're working on upgrading our servers so we can actually have a smooth recording. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Middle of the Pack. Real discussions for the middle of the pack by the middle of the pack. We'll talk about training and racing, but we're here to deep dive into the life topics of the weekend warriors and obstacle course racing enthusiasts. Obstacle course racing isn't just a sport, it's a lifestyle. We are the middle of the pack. I'm still fairly new to OCR, so my toolbox is ever-changing. One question that helped me is asking, what will I need to have or do to give myself the best opportunity at this time to perform? Little mischief. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Middle of the Pack Pod. Charles, and I'm here with Megan. Hi. And it is just the two of us this week. Derek got away, so we had to move forward with our episode this week. We are playing solo or duo. Duo, yes. <laughs> can, can before uh, did you did you just hear that? Are, are you picking up that sound that I, there was a little bit ago? Yeah. So randomly, um, not random. I don't know. I live in a really old apartment in South Boston, and we've talked to our landlord multiple times about it. But we will just hear things like scurrying across our roof. And like, there are times where they're like really loud thuds. And every time I go up there and check, there's nothing there. So recently, I think as like snow's melting and everything else, we're hearing a lot more noises coming from our roof. So if at any point you hear random sounds in my background, oh, that's just a bunch of creepy critters up on my roof. And then also if it's clicking, it's just tight and chewing on a bone. You know, now he's chilling. He's just laying half on the half on the chair. He could be like, uh, he could be like, see, Lexi's, I took her for a run before and she's passed out. So I will not be having dog squeaking noise throughout this episode. <laughs> knock on wood right now. What? I mean, why would we knock on wood and not have dog noises? I know, right? We love our dogs. Yeah, let's just get right into it today. We are talking about the OCR talks, you know? We are now getting into our racing season, and it's time to really talk about what we are bringing with us, what we are using to prepare us for the race course. With this episode, it is not going to be a strictly what do we use, plugging our brand ambassadorships. We're not going to tell you what you should be using because let's be honest, you know your body a hell of a lot better than we know your body. So only you can decide what you need to bring out on course. But with our help, we can give you some tips to help narrow down what specifically you should be using. We jump right in and get going on here is the rundown of the OCR toolbox. I actually got a question from one of my newest clients. His Instagram handle is primalfigs. 
He said, my question is what should a noob like myself bring out for a basic OCR? So Charles, when you think about starting out in OCR, what did you bring out on course? What did you use to prepare yourself for that race? My first couple races are not like the photos are not great. Um, first, that's okay. Uh, yeah, first uh, event I think I ran in swim trunks and <laughs> Vibram five finger shoes. As the time it was twenty thirteen, so ran in those. But um, as I kind of got more acquainted with the sport, I would I learned a lot of like what to bring just based on trial and error and kind of what people were wearing in photos. And yeah, my first actual like races that I took seriously, I mean, I bought the right shoes. I went out and bought some actual trail shoes to run in. So I wasn't running in like my rundown gym shoes that are just like an old pair of Nike running shoes. Um, I bought some clothes I was okay with getting messed up in, but it was also like comfortable to run in. Once I got further into the sport was grabbing gear, especially on like the longer runs, I did started just researching like what hydration vest was going to work best for me at this one. And then what type of race nutrition, which really took a lot of, that's a constant trial and error of figuring that out. So that was all within your first couple of races? No, um, the race nutrition really came later on when I started running the longer races. Um, but in the first couple of races, it was uh, just fine, like learning as I went, really. So for me, obviously, I've told it plenty of times before. I started with stadium races or races just around the city of Boston, nothing out in mud. So when I signed up for my first real mud, I'm holding up quotation marks, mud race. I was one of those people who said, you know, I have these really old sneakers. I can get them dirty and then just throw them away right at the venue. So I ran in sneakers that had no tread on them. And um, luckily, because it was an August race, I did look up what kind of um, tank top at least I should wear because I was looking at, you know, 90 degree weather in the hot, humid um, New England heat. And I saw that um, because of how hot it was going to be, running in a sports bra was not recommended, especially out on course, because wearing a tank top with like moisture wicking, it'll help cool you off a little bit. And then going through like dunk walls or whatever else, it's gonna hold some water. So it'll help cool you down on course, as opposed to just running in a sports bra and skin dries so quick that you're not getting any reprieve from um, any moisture in your clothes. So I had a moisture wicking tank top and I still had a pair of soccer shorts from when I was in high school. Old, old, old school. It, they, they were at least like 10 years old. It was bad. And then I had some knee high socks and I brought out the very last second, I realized that I was going to need more water than what I anticipated. So I bought one of those, like, again, holding up quotations, running belts uh -huh. from like a Marshall's TJ Maxx, where it has a spot for your water bottle. And little did I know that it doesn't hold your water bottle for very long when you're crawling through the mud. Yep. Um, so there are pictures of me 
holding this plastic water bottle as I'm like going through the course because I have this belt on, but it doesn't hold the water bottle. And I need this water because I'm like dying of heat exhaustion at this point. You know, my shoes were getting stuck in the mud every other step. It was just quite literally a hot mess. So today, starting with um, Primal Fix's question, do not do a single thing of what I did with the exception of maybe the moisture wicking shirt. Um, And I did wear a bandana. And that was for the same reason um, I read online that having a bandana will help keep your head obviously from like getting any kind of sunburn but it's also going to hold any water so if you like dump water on your head having a bandana will hold that more so it's gonna stop you from having any like heat illness so I I, I'm all for bandanas out on the course now I wear them because I have green hair that I don't want to have to re-dye after every race Um, And it kind of works, but I still do it in part because of the heat as well. Thinking about the wearing old shoes on course, it reminds me back when ops like mud races first started and you would see people either not caring about their shoes or they would duct tape on their shoes. My God. I don't know why that just like reminded me of of like put duct taping your shoes on. Because I remember reading it on one of the websites of like, if you want to keep your shoes, duct tape them on. It's just like something I just remembered. and. Kind of goes with all of the people at like Greek Peak, Tahoe's, like anything in snow where you see people putting trash bags around their feet and then putting them in their shoes and thinking like, this is going to be the way to keep your feet dry, to keep my feet dry. It's like, where do people get this stuff? I will say, though, I did um, put athletic tape around my shoes once because I had been given a pair of the Reebok. I, all train or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. And after like my third race, I was out running and the Boston super ironically the same weekend, only a year later, my shoes are like, my feet are falling out of my shoes. Cause the shoes are falling apart so badly. So I'm just like taping, wrapping tape around them. And they're like, Oh, your shoes are untied. I'm like, no, it's the tape holding my shoes together. Those all terrains. They were there. I credit those for ruining my feet that one season. Those were awful. I loved them. I just didn't like how um, they fell apart. That you could only wear them for three days or for three races. I mean, that sounds like Reebok to me, but. <laughs> but with that being said, shoes are probably the, one of the biggest mistakes we see new racers make out on the course. I mean, how many times have we been coming down that double black diamond at Killington and you have, you know, first time racers who might be running the sprint. They might be running the beast. I don't know, but they're flying down that hill going, Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. As we're all in our trail shoes, making sure our feet got has nice grip. And we're like, where are your trail shoes? You have no traction on your shoes. You are about to take out every single person on this mountain because you have no control from the ground it's one of that's one of the early things i learned was getting a proper pair of shoes and yeah they're a little expensive but if you're looking ocr as a sport and if you're just trail running it's worth investing the money in. they're kind of cost you like 100 130 bucks depending on what brand you're buying 
but it's worth it for the safety and also just protecting your feet as well because 100 percent. yeah the the amount of times yeah we've seen people slipping down the course and then you look down and they're in like they're you're, they're in the shoes you buy at like dsw they're just the cheap standard cheap throwaway nikes if it's your one and only race all right i get it but if you're looking to like really get to this you should invest in a good pair of shoes and definitely find the ones that fit for you and not just buy whatever shoes people are running in honestly i say if it's your one and only race might as well run it barefoot because at least you don't have to buy new shoes and your feet aren't getting stuck in the mud if you are planning to or you're aiming for a specific time or whatever else if you wear just plain sneakers, you're not getting your feet out. I remember the Boston Super when it was at Barry, it was horrendous. You would, it was like that cement suction mud. Mm. And um, even in trail shoes, you would still lose your shoes. When I went and signed up for my beast, I did go out and I bought, again, in quotes, trail shoes. Um, I bought some Saucony trail shoes. They were listed as trail shoes. They were very similar to what I was running in. And I got out in on the course in South Carolina at Adventure World, and I was still losing my shoes in the mud. The tread on these, again, quote-unquote trail shoes, they, the lugs were not big enough to be successful out on the trails. So from there, that's when, um, well... I made a friend at Spartan who decided to toss me one of the pairs of the <laughs> Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge shoes. I wore those for half a year. And then from there, I was like, you know, it's really time to get myself some decent shoes. I had a really hard time with shoes for almost everybody who doesn't know me personally. I have big feet and I have to wear a size 13 regularly my regular shoes in running shoes i have to go 14s because 13 and a half don't exist but for the longest time earlier on i was stuck only choosing a few companies because people wouldn't make 14s like solomon would make 14s but innovate did there was a there was a good chunk of shoes that shoe companies out there who didn't invest in making bigger sizes so i was really narrowed down but once i got into the right shoes my running got much better and my on course running got much better because I was no longer relying on just whatever shoes I could get. I found shoes that really catered to me. So if anybody else out there is a big foot runner, I feel your struggle. So when I wound up getting, like actually buying my first pair of shoes for OCR, I did what almost every single person in this sport has done at one point or another. They went into that Spartans of the Northeast or, you know, the Savage Syndicate, the Mud Run Guy group, wherever else they you are group on Facebook. And I said, I need to, to finally get some OCR shoes. I just had the Reebok All-Terrains. They fell apart in three races. What should I get? And when you ask people in a Facebook group, you get every answer under the sun. Everybody's saying, oh, try Solomon, try Salming, try Innovate. So as I'm getting all this information, you know, people are telling me what they use and why they like it. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to go to Amazon and start typing in some of these names. 
and see if I can find a pair for relatively cheap. So I went and I found the shoe that was, you know, people recommended that I could find for the cheapest. I brought, I bought this ugly teal pair of speed crosses um, coming off of the all-terrain, which the all-terrain was, I forget what the heel drop was, but not it was huge. not. Yeah. It's, it was not the like 13 millimeter mm-hmm. that a speed cross is. Yeah. Um, so for to backtrack for anybody who's unfamiliar with shoe dimensions, one big specific or specification in shoes are your height from heel to toe, and that's your heel drop. So things like an ultra, and we'll definitely be talking about this well more, but ultra is that zero drop. So it is completely flat from toe to heel. The Reebok Ultrains, I don't remember what they were. I, I want to say like, they were like a three or something. Yeah, they were like a three, three to five millimeter. They're not, there's not much. Yeah, there wasn't much. And I loved them. They were super comfortable. Um, that was like my ideal shoe if they would have just held up. Um, they had great like um the water would run out of them perfectly they were super light awesome but then i switched to these speed crosses because i didn't know any better i found them for cheap everybody's telling me i should do use them and i put them on they felt like bricks on my feet oh yeah um and if you talk to brian you might actually he might still remember this um like our first ever trail run when we just met each other Um, we went out to the blue Hills and I suffer from turf toe on my right toe. I've had it since gymnastics and cheerleading in high school. Like it's, I know it's there, but it doesn't bother me anymore. There are things that'll still make it flare up. Suddenly I was running in these speed crosses and I get this horrendous pain in my left great toe to the point where he's helping me off of the blue hills, which are not very like steep. Um, you can get some elevation if you know where to go, but you're not running up and down a mountain. Um, I can't walk. I can't run. We make our way to the main road and we like walk the long way around the blue hills, like on the roads to get back to the parking lot, just because I can't handle any kind of terrain. Now to this day, I still have problem that, a problem that feels like turf toe in that left toe. And I think it's because that heel drop was um, so much greater than what I was used to that it forced my great toe into a hyperflexion that it's not used to for that prolonged period of time mixed with the terrain and all of the other things going on. So I like an idiot decided to keep wearing them for a year. Like who lets me do this stuff? Like I I'm, I will admit I am a pretty frugal person. So I do like to go on and find the best ultras uh, or the ultras for the best deal within reason. But I was like, I just bought these shoes. I need to make them work. Rule number one, people, you do not need to make your shoes work. If they don't work, they don't work. Send them back or something else not every shoe works for everybody my tip for that is especially when it is come to trial and error with shoes i don't know if it's worldwide or uh, nationwide for us i have the vip family membership for uh roadrunner sports 
It's a running store. You can you can get it online. You don't have to like go to the store and do it. I pay like 50 bucks. You have a 90 day, no questions asked return policy. I have had friends go out, buy shoes, run a hundred miles and then return them just because they didn't like them. Granted, it's a shitty thing to do, but it's a way to at least test drive your shoes that way. So you can at least buy those speed crosses if you want them, run in them. You'll find out like for a lot of people, you'll find out they're very heavy. Uh, They're very stack height. And you can just be like, all right, this didn't work for me. I'm at least going to return them and see what else I can find. So I would, it's, I pay for it every year. I only buy three to five pairs of shoes a year, mostly. And to me, that like 50 to, I think it's 55 bucks actually, is worth it every year just to have that. I rarely make use of that 90 day return policy now, but it's good to have that in my back pocket if I'm going to uh, use that. So no, that's not the only way to determine if a shoe works for you or not. And actually, I don't recommend ever just blindly purchasing a shoe and praying that they work. Um, What we should really need, what we do need to continue to encourage people to do is go to your local running stores. I'm a certified athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coach. And even I cannot tell you what you specifically need in a running shoe. Do I think every single person who works at a running store knows exactly what every single person needs or all of the details about every specific shoe? No, but they have a hell of a lot more knowledge than just the lay person. So my recommendation is go to that running store, talk to them about what you're looking for, and then have them assess your gait. Watch you walk, see if you're overpronating, underpronating, take a look at your arches, see how much of a heel lift you need. Um, just have them watch you walk and run in a pair of shoes. Honestly, pro tip, I don't buy my shoes from running stores. Yes, I do go to a running store and get my feet assessed by them and they tell me what shoes to look for. I just give them one of those, eh, I kind of need to think about it. And then I go to Amazon or Google. There are ways to find shoes that are affordable and specific for you. Once you have a shoe or a type of shoe, unless you develop injuries and that kind of stuff, I always recommend stocking up on that shoe, just cycling through the exact same shoes. Um, So, uh, you know, get your, uh, we're going to keep mentioning Ultra because that's what Charles and I both run in. So I have my King MT 1.5s. I have my King MT2s, I have my Escalante 1.5s, I have my Escalante 2.5s, I have my Tips, I have my Superiors. I know they work for my feet, so when I can tell my shoes are dying, I just go right back online and I order myself another pair of what I'm already running in. Especially with, uh, it really applies for us in Ultra, because Ultra likes to change their models every like year. They like to come out with the half steps, and you're always like, why did you do this? Because usually they like to innovate on their their models that were already fine the way they were. But um, I will say uh, Roadrunner does have, I'm just going to push them just because of their return policy, but they do actually have in-person stores and they, I have gotten their like whole gate analysis thing. And it didn't really work for me because they wanted me to run in a stability shoe instead of a neutral shoe. And I'm not, actually that type of runner but they do have that they also have like the they will a lot of these places now will try and push you on like the custom molded shoe inserts 
And I would recommend, I personally would recommend not going with that because they're not going to be built for going inside of your, your, your trail shoes. They're not going to last. So it's not worth the extra cost. So it's funny that we're mentioning ultra because if anybody has been around in the sport for a few years, we all remember the big ultra craze in what was that like 2018? Everybody saw the new Barton King MT 2.0s or whatever else. And this was the first time that Spartan started putting non-Reebok shoes up on their website because they no longer were the um, sponsored by Reebok. So everybody is thinking, this is great. Everybody bought their ultras. They did, didn't care to read the transition guidelines. And then with six month, within six months, we're seeing this huge revolt of everybody tossing out their ultras, giving up their ultras. People are having knee injuries, foot injuries, ankle injuries. And it's like, well, you just bought a zero drop shoe. A lot of people are coming off these speed crosses because they knew they didn't know any better. And now, oh, I'm going right to a zero drop. It took me at least three months to transition from the speed cross into the ultra king mt 1.5 after the season i was running in a new balance shoe they were um three millimeter and i decided to make the jump from these new balances to my ultras for on the road and it took me another three months to transition from the new balance to the ultras for my road shoes. So it's not something that you can just take fresh out of the box and go run in if you've never ran in them before. And the biggest thing we need to be stressing to people when they are looking at their shoes, what are the specifics that you're looking for? That heel height plays a big role in it because the higher you're lifted up off the ground in terms of toe to heel, the more support you're giving your calves. So you're not going to be able to get as much range of motion from your calves. If you're on a zero drop, you are straight flat footed. So when you go to climb up a mountain, you have maximum range of motion through your calves. So they are going to feel like they're tighter. They might cramp a lot easier. And you're pulling on so many different muscles through your ankle, your knees, your hips all because you're now operating at a greater range of motion on your calves that maybe you're not used to. I'm going to tell you right now, yes, I'm a female. I used to have an obsession with heels. I cannot wear heels now. And it's in part because I wear zero drop, minimalist, barefoot shoes to where I am used to walking straight from toe to heel. And I try to wear a little bit of a heel height and my calves just cramp. It was the uh, first time I ran at ultras. That's the lesson I learned was I ran like seven miles in them out the box. My calves were fucked for a couple of days because they were not used to that range of motion. Even though before that I was running. Just a couple of days? Yeah. I bounced back pretty, pretty easily. <laughs> um, even though before that I was running in shoes that were only a couple millimeter height difference. Uh, but I think the main thing to take away is even though for us, ultra is what works. Um, I actually will say a lot of my OCR racing shoes. I actually don't have ultra OCR racing shoes. I am 
I usually run in Innovates, um, and right now I'm actually going to be trying a, a different shoe for this season, which is very similar to the Innovates, but that's the brand I've lived by, and it's kind of what I've gotten the most success out of my racing from. Um, but my training shoes are strictly ultra, and it's only because Innovate is only a couple millimeter difference. It's not enough for me to notice while I'm running in these. We are so many different OCR shoes out there. You really do need to test around and see what works for you. Because we do have like, we have the high-end VJ shoes. We have Ultra. We have Solomon, which does have a lot more variation in their shoes now. And then we have Salming as well. And some people still have ice bugs. And it's, it's a really wide range of stuff. And the best thing to do is definitely test them. But don't test them in a race environment. Test them no, don't. in the middle of the season. Make sure you're at least like putting the mile, like some of the miles on them and seeing how they feel. And definitely don't judge them one run out of the box because sometimes shoes aren't great. They're going to take some time to break in a little bit. They're going to take a few runs to test them that way. Um, it also um, takes a few runs to develop turf toe. So if you develop issues through your feet, take that as a sign of get me out of these shoes and not as a sign of, oh, well, maybe it's going to get better because it's not. It's actually just messing up your gait, your body. So learn from my mistakes. So I guess moving along, since we've determined as a new racer, regardless of what race length you're running, you need the shoes. Um, that is probably the number one important thing we can advise people is get some trail shoes. If you're going to be committing to this sport, you can't just run in your three-year-old sneakers that you've been running in and then just throw them away at the end of this. Um, take care of your feet. But then what else do we like to stress in terms of new racers? What should they be packing to their first race? Um, I guess the next logical step would actually be, uh, what do you plan on wearing to this race? Because a lot of people think, oh, it's a mud run. We're going to get muddy and you know, wear clothes we don't care about. So a lot of people's first step would think, I'm just going to wear whatever cotton shirt they have and just walk out in that and then some gym shorts and you'll be fine for a lot of races you can kind of get away with it you can get away with it a little bit of the early, the late winter like early spring races you can sometimes get away with it but for a chunk of our races they're going to happen in the hotter months and the one thing i've known for a long time even before races is you don't do athletic stuff in cotton I learned that just from being in the Boy Scouts. You don't hike in cotton. You don't do anything. You got to sweat in it because it doesn't dry. It's going to hold on to it. It's not breathable. So you're going to have a lot of problems. And if you show up to a lot of races, if you show up to like, I'm going to go with the first one that pops in my head during summer, which is like the now, I think, extinct tuxedo sprint. That is at the beginning of May, June. It's very hot out usually at that time because it's New York and it gets humid. If you show up in a cotton shirt and that thing's in the sun most of the time, you're going to be sweating and you're going to be putting yourself in danger even in a sprint. You need to make sure that you're at least wearing something that's polyester, even maybe just a polyester cotton blend you could get away with because then you're at least having something that's a little breathable and it's not going to hold on to, I make it you said earlier, sometimes uh, it'll hold on to water and it'll cool you down. Sometimes that works really well, but other times it can also be a detriment because then your shirt's just holding on to water the whole race. And you're, even though you're sweating, it's never drying itself. And you need something that'll at least breathe and dry and keep you, it's going to keep you, you cool. You should but... get moisture wicking. So it pulls the moisture away from your body. 
Yeah, most stuff is moisture wicking now, but that's usually on the top or end. But a lot of the stuff you don't have to break the bank to get a good shirt to run races in. You can go to Dick Sporting Goods and get something that's at least going to breathe. But don't show up in the whatever shirt they even give you for the race, where it's just like the race brand cotton shirt. And I will say it doesn't, the cotton stuff doesn't just apply to your shirt. It's going to apply to everything down because you don't want to be running in cotton underwear. You don't want to be running in basically cotton, anything, especially socks. You're not going to want to run in cotton socks. I don't care if they go up to your knees and they have like basketball stripes on them. That's all that's neat and all. But if anything, you're going to be setting yourself up to probably get a lot of blisters. Uh, You're going to be setting yourself up to probably if you're wearing really bad shoes, you're probably going to end up in toe rot or boot rot, jungle rot, whatever you want to call it. You're going to end up with some nasty feet because cotton's not built to run in. It's built to be comfortable. So if you're running in cotton socks, your feet are going to be constantly shifting and causing some uncomfortable hot spots. And then you're that person crossing the finish line, like trying to soft walk your way across. And that's not, that's not how you want to look in your finisher photos. I kept meaning to take a look at what kind of socks I wear because I am very particular about my socks. I am a double sock person. I wear, and gosh, I, I wish I remembered to look. Um, the socks I wear are cushioned around all of the places where you'd normally get hot spots, you know, right around that great toe joint, um, bottom of the feet, um, toes, heels. Hi, Titan. Thank you for deciding you're going to squeak your toy right next to me. Um, And then I throw compression socks over it. And honestly, even with a 24-hour race under my belt, I have never had toe foot issues. My recommendation is I actually am one of the few one of the freaks who run in toe socks and i know people are like i don't like i don't like cotton and stuff between my toes i don't want them to be separated ever since i started running in toe socks my feet have not had blisters i don't have any rock problems in my shoes they're comfortable and the Injinji trail socks are really they're a good medium thickness so they have some padding on them and they don't shift around on your foot because they're like a glove on your foot and that's my recommendation on those. It's it's worth, I mean, it's worth having your toes separated. Pretty nice. It's funny that you just mentioned the word glove, because I think one thing we definitely need to address with all of the new racers. Mm-hmm. Again, Titan is going to continue to squeak this right in my face. Um, gloves. We see it all the time. Everybody's asking, should I wear gloves out on course? What gloves should I wear? Um What's your opinion on gloves? I don't wear gloves. And I actually, I wore gloves to Bonefrog in 2019. It was because the North Carolina race was starting cold. Um, And my opinion on Bonefrog obstacles is that they're not well taken care of. So they're not easy on the hands. And it's not like, oh, your hands need to be tougher. Um, No, they're not safe for your hands is what I'm saying. But I wore gloves there and I had more problems wearing gloves because when you wear, when you have gloves on, they're going to stick to the obstacle, but sometimes your hand's just going to shift in that glove and pull down. So you're actually like now halfway through your glove trying to hold on to an obstacle and you, it's just a detriment to it. You're, 
your best option is to just go without them. I don't care what Spartan's selling where they have the little like grips that go onto, onto your palm. They're not going to help you really stick and be better at obstacles. If anything, they're going to be a little bit of a handicap and you're never going to get used to the obstacles. It makes sense to have them when it's a freezing cold race like Greek Peak or Tough Mudder or anything like that, but it's no point in having them because you're just going to do a detriment to your hands. And here I am shaking my head violently because no, they are no good at a Greek Peak at a Tough Mudder. Blagmits are phenomenal at those where you can have access to your hands, but I'm going to drop some knowledge on you because while you're sitting here and saying, I can't grip in gloves and my hands are falling out of my gloves. The truth of the matter is actually we have balance receptors in our hands, similar to our feet. The reason why we get, um, we're more stable on our feet when we're out of shoes versus when we're in shoes is the same reason why we are better at obstacles when we are out of gloves versus when we're in gloves. If we put a layer between our hands and our gloves, we do not get the same um, grip strength and stability component from the obstacle. So it would be like we're trying to pick up a weight through a blanket. That weight is more likely going to slip out underneath because you're gripping the blanket, you're not gripping the weight. You can't control those gloves. They will not grip. Yeah, so they might have some little rubber on it to help you to help hold on a little bit more, but they have already rendered your grip so far decreased. They're pointless. Um, when I was running legitimately my first obstacle course race, when I got onto those monkey bars, I went to swing with my gloves on. And you know what happened? The gloves just completely shredded from fingers through palms. And that is what happens when you are trying to grip something that isn't, doesn't give you the ability to grip. The gloves were trying to increase the surface area to physically swing around the monkey bars. So instead of being like, oh, well, I can help you grip this. It's like, oh, I'm really trying to grip this, but no, you're trying to swing. So I'm useless. And the only thing I can really do right now is rip. So my entire gloves just ripped straight mm -hmm. off my hands because I needed the mobility from my hands and I didn't need the rubber on my gloves to grip anymore. So gloves, throw them away. Start building up your calluses. I promise you are going to be so much better off without gloves. If you feel like you need gloves for warmth when you're out on course, definitely look into those bleg mitts. Um, they're phenomenal. They give you the protection you need from cold or whatever else, but then they have a slit to where you can pull your hands out quickly. Okay, so then... We've talked about really the basics of what we need in terms of gear, but one thing, and you and I, we've, I know I've kind of mentioned it. I had a horrible experience with a running belt before I knew what I needed in terms of hydration. What do we use out on course for hydration packs? When do we need hydration packs first and foremost? Really? I think in terms of when you need a hydration vest, 
hydration pack water bottle really is up to you as a runner because some people are able to do longer races without needing water on them some people are able to do that uh, if you're a first time racer and even if you're doing a sprint you know what bring water on course bring in a hydration pack i don't care if you buy like a camel pack from walmart or whatever like as long as you have hydration with you that's fine but when i bring hydration on course it's usually anything over usually any depending on the course but it's usually anything over seven miles because i know i'm going to be out there for a while and these races are not good with putting hydration stations out there they sometimes they're not even filled with water usually by the time you get there so i would rather rely on myself than the water provided for course i am strictly i'm not a belt person water belts to me are super annoying because they just sit around your waist and they just bounce around i'm strictly a hydration vest person my personal opinion is solomon has the best vest out there but they are pricey so i understand why people want to go with that but i would recommend anybody investing in a hydration vest that is built for running that there are hydration packs out there that are just for day hiking and some of them are just they are just the shoulder straps you need something that'll strap across the chest and not just once you kind of need it twice because it's going to keep it from bouncing around on you because if it's bouncing around on you you're going to end up chafed somewhere i'm still up in the air about what i use for hydration packs um i've used a nathan running belt i didn't find it to bounce around all that much I only, when I bring water out, it all depends on the temperature and the distance, the amount of time I expect to be out there and when I think I'm going to be needing um, hydration, fuel, whatever else. Um, I wasn't, I didn't hate the Nathan belt, the um, little water bottles, they broke really easily though. So I switched to an ultimate direction, the OCR vest last year. And um, it was one of those things that like I found it on a site for reasonably cheap. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I hate it. I'm going to be straight up honest. They give you like a cell phone pouch and take away one of the front pockets where you can put a water bottle. It is nice. And the thing I do like about it is that it doesn't, um, it only has a little strap underneath the arms instead of like a full mesh like support belt around it. Um, so it is very flexible for, I haven't obstacled with it yet because we haven't had a race. I, it is very easy for like arm movements and I think it will be great for obstacling, but I'm somebody, I don't like bladders. Um, I don't want to put a giant pack of water on my back to slosh around. It's annoying when you're out on course, if you're running age group, or elite, you have to keep that on you at all times. And if I have this water in there, it's getting pulled off by the barbed wire crawl, or um, it's get it's throwing me around and it's um, throwing off my center of gravity. So I just don't like bladders. I prefer to use water bottles. But again, it all comes down to personal preference with that. You need to be able to, with your hydration packs, before you ever get out on the race course, I changed into this ultimate direction vest. I got out into the summer and I found that I couldn't wear a sports bra, like only a sports bra when I'm running because I was getting such bad chafing from the lack of stability through the front of this vest. So I needed to always wear a tank top with it, which was annoying to me. Um, and I 
ultimately didn't like it. The one thing I will say about bladders is a lot of running vests now don't come with bladders, and it's kind of been that way for a while. They don't have back bladders because it's it's cumbersome to deal with the tube that comes around the top or around underneath the arm. A lot of them now, uh, mostly Ultimate Direction and Solomon, which in my opinion are the two, those are the two on the market. I don't, the other ones I'm just whatever about. But they all have, uh, they all have front bottles that are bottle bladders. So they break down as they go. They're not the hard plastic bottle that you get out of a Nathan. And those now they even update them to where they have the longer straws. So it's easier to drink out of, but it's easier to drink because they're right up on your chest. You can either just reach down or pull them up to you. So the bladder on the top is rarely ever, on the back is rarely ever a thing anymore. It's kind of, it's more in the hiking community. And they're also difficult to clean because you have to, clean the whole tube and stuff it's a whole process but um my only suggestion with you will see me run with a bladder if it is a very long race and the only reason i'll have it on me is for emergency cases like i wish i actually had run with it at my last vermont ultra because they didn't put a water station between well, they didn't put a water station until well after the ultra beast loop and that was, in my opinion, stupid and dangerous on their part. But I wish I had brought at that point because I would have filled it because I know I needed the extra water. But I would never actually start a race with a filled hydration pack on the back. With a lot of vests now, they do have uh, the mesh underneath the arms. And I actually think it's a really good thing because companies like Solomon, that's where they put their extra pockets for your nutrition. So instead of having to reach into the back and over your shoulder or take your pack off to get your food, all you really have to do is reach down to the side and zip the pocket and boom, your food's right there. So um, I also would discourage people from getting anything that's built specifically for OCR because a hydration vest built for OCR just seems ridiculous because how is it going to be any different than what Solomon already has in the market and has worked for ultra runners for, for a while now. I'll tell you one. They, um, so with the uh, OCR vest, they did um, make it cut thinner around the shoulder joints to um, have more ease of shoulder mobility. So it's not as thick across the tops of the shoulders. Um, so you can obstacle a little bit better. But if you're training in your um, hydration vest, you will work around it or um, you'll get used to it um, by the time you get out onto a race course. Um, and it shouldn't be a factor for you. Yeah, I've also never had a problem with my vest shoulder straps being an issue with obstacling. They're not. Listen, you're, you're a guy. You're a guy. You have big, broad shoulders. I Us have, ladies, I we, had... we are the ones that are more concerned about something big and broad across our shoulders. We don't need that. Um, we don't have big, broad shoulders. We need a little more ease of shoulder movement. I have pitched many people on many of my female friends on the Solomon vests, and they've bought them, and they've been perfectly fine. But, I mean, it comes down to testing the product at that point. But yeah, I, I'm still not sold on vests. I might look into something even smaller. I don't know. I don't really bring a lot of gear out with me on course unless I anticipate like rain, getting wet, like something like that. I think Tahoe is um, one of the races that I bring the most stuff 
out. And that's because I'm anticipating one, I'm not wearing a shirt when I'm going out at the start of Tahoe because it's in a um, dry bag already. So when I do go into the swim, I don't have to worry about taking my shirt off, putting it in the dry bag, and then putting it back on. Because remember, skin dries faster than clothes. So the same reason why we want to wear a tank top out in the summer um, to hold some moisture. If you're going into a swim in a cold race, or you know, if you're in the ultra, it like how it was in the Carolinas, if you're in a rainstorm, if you don't change your shirt and you hold, continue to wear a shirt that's soaking wet, you're going to get colder a lot quicker and you're risking hypothermia. So in like a Tahoe sense, everybody brings their dry bag out, they take their shirt off um, and then they carry it with them through the swim um, to make sure they're staying warm. And that's the only time I've ever really needed a larger hydration pack. Um, maybe it'll change if the time comes that I ever run a Spartan Ultra, but for right now, I'm okay with even downsizing from my OCR vest. Yeah, that's based on the races you've run. When it comes to a longer races, you are going to need a bigger pack, especially if you're jumping into the longer, not even just Spartan Ultras, because let's face it, ultra running is a part of the OCR community when you get into the longer miles, when you get into the Spartan Ultra uh, the ultra beast you're going to start dabbling into ultra running as well so you are going to start running races where they are not a four or five mile loop you're going to be running 13 mile loops at certain points or you're going to have 26 miles of no station so you are going to have to like get comfortable with having more gear on you and uh also shout out to rebel trucker who learned the hard way about not changing his shirt during during the spartan ultra in carolina um it's a hard lesson to learn. So with us talking about um, our hydration packs, we should probably also mention what we put into our hydration packs. What are you throwing into your water bottles? Um, what are you carrying out on course? And how do you make the decision of what you want to have for fuel? Well, my water bottles are strictly filled with uh, Fireball whiskey because that's the best way to go. Um, oh, God, the, no. <laughs> the um, No, I, I mean, this is me pushing my ambassadorship, but this is the reason why I represent them. I only run races with water, and it always has noon in it, because I know I need the electrolytes when I'm running, and I'm going to need to be replenished, especially with how hot of a In 40-degree weather, I can drench myself in sweat. Like, I sweat a lot, so I need to replenish so in my water bottles i always have either a one noon tablet or two scoops depending on whichever product i'm using out of them and it's mainly it also keeps my energy up but i would never fill it with like yeah like i joked about with alcohol or soda or stuff as a general maintenance thing if you fill your hydration bottles with anything but water or even maybe gatorade because you can kind of get away with that you're actually going to end up ruining them it's really it's really cute to like put some wine in there, but congrats, you ruined that bladder. And then in terms, like, did we want to take the full deep dive into nutrition or was it just, just about the water or whatever we're putting fully I mean, in there? We, we can bounce it off. I have my own stories to tell about that too. So for me personally, I am less of an electrolytes on the course type of person. I usually spend my entire week leading up to 
a race with downing electrolytes. Um, I drank like a liter of coconut water a day in the week leading up to a race. So by the time I get out to a race, I am on electrolyte overload. I can no longer stomach any kind of like fruity electrolyte beverage. Um, but I'm definitely getting more water than electrolytes. And it's again, just I'm overdoing myself on electrolytes. I've also brought out like oral IV before and taken it, you know, on a strict schedule to make sure that I like curb cramping p- prevention. I mean, and that's kind of what works for you. But based on just my past experience, I've really pushed electrolyte on course as well. And to have it yeah, in your drop in if you need it. We have a, a message here from Michelle who says, um, we love the honey stinger waffles. They're perfect refuel without upsetting our stomachs. And I think that's something a lot of people really are starting to learn the difference of race fuel versus normal foods. Like a waffle, I would say definitely is more of a regular type of food, but I'll eat it out on course whenever I need something with a crunch. So I I stick to chews. And actually within the last year, I was never a gel person. I hated gels. I couldn't palate them. They made me want to vomit. But I tried out the Honey Stinger chocolate and vanilla flavors, and they taste, they have more of like a frosting consistency. Fell in love with those, and then I crept into the gels. And I find I get so much more energy from the gels. Um, they, they work a lot quicker. So I use the gels, but then if I'm on a longer race and I don't want to, again, I can't handle all of these fruity flavors, but I don't want to take a gel every. 45 minutes I'm over the chews I'm gonna grab a waffle and I need some like real food to bite into and like actually chew to to make my brain think a little bit more again I'm going to speak mostly from the longer distance running when it comes to race nutrition if you're running a longer race Stop putting all your nutrition just in gels and goos and waffles if you're running a longer race because that, yeah, it'll give you a quick dose of energy, but it's built for quick dose of energy in that pinch of a shorter race. Uh, when it comes to race nutrition on the longer races, actual food. And you're going to need stuff that's going to have a lot of salt in it Uh because it helps you really avoid cramping and your body's really going to want it. It's going to be that food that is very high in calorie intake for the size it is. So think about it like think about it like Pop-Tarts. It's not a huge meal, but it's got a shit ton of calories in it. You don't want to bog down, and this is a lesson I learned from past ultra racing into now. You don't want to bog down on super heavy food either. Uh, uh, back when I started dabbling in multi-lap ultras for OCR and then getting into the distancing, I was looking for the food that was going to work for me. I wanted something that was easy to handle, uh, was I could eat hot or cold, and was easy to take on course and could eat while I'm going. And I ended up settling on pizza. And for a while, it worked. It worked really well. and. It filled, it checked all the boxes I wanted, and pizza's not terrible. But as my career went on with running these 
longer races as I would eat this pizza, I would start feeling I couldn't run for a good mile because I was just so blocked up with from the dough and the cheese and my body just didn't want it anymore. It made me feel really heavy. And that's one thing you do have to understand with race nutrition. Just because it worked this one time or one season doesn't mean it's going to work the next time. Because currently right now, the main thing I can eat during my ultras, because I did do a few last year, I tried tacos for one of them. Worked fine, but it was a 50K. I didn't need that much. I didn't need to rely that much. Lately, it's been a weird combo of like peanut butter M&Ms and Cheez-Its. Trail mix that I've made with like, it's got uh, cashews, peanut butter M&Ms, and like dried cranberries and dried pine. That seems to be the way to go because it's just an all-round just grab of nutrients that I can get. And I can just quickly, cheaply put it together and throw it in a bag. Um, but you are going to want things like, sometimes you're going to want soup because you need the salt, or, or not soup, but chicken broth because you need the salt. Or you can be like you can be like a lot of us weirdos and drink pickle juice because somehow that is a miracle cure for running. I don't know why, but it just works. It's also a miracle cure for hangovers. Fun fact picklebacks all the way but no as we're talking about fuel like listen guys i know what works for us probably is not going to work for you so i don't want to stress as much of this what works for us um when i was prepping for my ultra the best piece of advice my coach gave me and i'm going to give you is use your race fuel your gels your chews for during your laps And when you come into your pit area, that is when you get your real food. So obviously that's for like your shorter laps. We had four to five mile laps. If you're out on that ultra beast, definitely make sure you have some real, quote unquote, real food with you. Um, Listen to your body what you want after long runs, because your body tells you after a long run what it's craving and that dictates what you're depleted in. So for example, after Tahoe, in 2018, 2019, I don't even know what year we're in anymore. Um, the last year I ran Tahoe, I came back and I remember sitting at work like all week. I'm dying of hunger. I'm so hungry. But every time I try to find something to eat, nothing sounds appetizing. It actually is making me feel nauseous. The only thing I could eat for that entire week was mashed potatoes and pulled pork. I not a big mashed potatoes person. I'm not a pork person, but for some reason that was the only thing that sounded good. So for my ultra, you know what I packed? Mashed potatoes and pulled pork. I think I only ate it once, but it was definitely needed. And potatoes are one of those things that it's got a high glycemic index, which a glycemic index, the short version is it gets into your bloodstream quicker. So you want to avoid whole foods because they've got a lower glycemic index. Your body processes them over a longer period of time. You can eat the junk foods during races, during workouts, because that those blood sugars get broken down and go immediately into, into the bloodstream. Yeah, it's definitely something you're going... When I, was, when I decided on pizza, it's definitely something I went out and did, actually brought on my training rooms because I wanted to see how I would end up receiving it and during those training runs it worked and that's what worked for the short time right now i'm kind of just testing and seeing what's gonna work for me because i at least want to be able to set up for season and see this is the food that i'm going to need at the time but it's definitely a huge trial and error process and then if anybody is running 
any of our Ultra Beasts this year if they happen. I actually probably wouldn't bring food, uh, like actual food on course, because some of these races, like OCRs, were going through some muddy water and stuff. And if you don't have a dry bag to put your food in, it's going to get messed up. Make sure you have at least some form of meal at your drop bin in the middle of it so you can eat there because you're really going to need it mid race. It really helps you revitalize something I learned when I did my, when I failed my first two ultra beasts. Okay. So yeah, we, we want to make sure that our nutrition is on point on course, but then we also need to talk about our nutrition leading up to the race. And I know um, a lot of times when we're talking about race week, there's so much stuff around carb loading, how to carb load, when to carb load. And um, really, it seems like in this community, nobody understands a single thing about it. So Charles, do you know how to properly carb load? Um, I don't technically follow the carb idea. Because like when someone says like carb load, what pops in my head is the episode of The Office where eating pasta, Mm -hmm. like the day of the race or the night before. I've told many people this it's not about carb loading the night before a race you actually want to do it like if you're running on saturday you don't carb load and eat all your food friday you're going to want to do it on thursday and actually if anything i where i will have my biggest meal on thursday for lunch and i will kind of pare down to like a thursday dinner a little bit bigger than usual and then friday's just another regular day of eating i'm eating the stuff i eat regularly i'm not eating anything top or too large i'm not buying a burrito bowl or a pizza on fridays i'm getting just standard chicken and potatoes and and some greens it's oh now lexi's chewing a bone behind me um (laughs) you don't want to when you if you're going to eat all your food on friday you're going to feel heavy saturday morning come race time your body's not going to have processed any of that food and it's not really going to be in your system um, I don't know the science behind this, but it's through trial and error. And also just like, that's what I've learned from other people in the racing community, especially for longer runs. It is more about the food you eat on the Thursday or two days out instead of the day just before. And then when it comes to actually like race morning, I don't do a big meal. I will probably get some coffee and then maybe a muffin or a bagel or a bagel sandwich. And that's it. Like I don't, want to run with a full stomach before any lengths of race actually if it's a if it's a stadium sprint or a sprint i probably might i may just have a gel or a waffle or just a cup of coffee when it comes to race week nutrition really all you have to do is eat normal um if you are looking to carb load it is not a quick eat a bunch of pasta the night before the race it's about slowly adding more calories in in the days leading up to the race. So Wednesday, Thursday, yes, are more important than Friday or, you know, whatever. If your race is on Sunday, then Friday is the more important um, nutrition. But really just adding in your hydration, getting water, getting electrolytes, getting natural foods. And then with the meal before the race, it's just about eating something you're used to eating. So you're then going to just eat normal, maybe a lighter meal. You do not want to have something big and solid that just sits in your stomach like a rock. Especially because if you eat one of those, especially because if you eat one of those big meals before the night before a race, you might have some bathroom problems the day of the race. 
So you don't really want to like throw it off too much. You want to keep your like when you eat the bigger meals, just make sure you're not eating anything out of the ordinary. Like if you're just a person who eats meat and potatoes, don't just decide like, hey, I'm going to have a big old thing of pad thai Thursday night. Mm, not the best idea. Keep it within what you're used to. So this brings up a really great story I have actually back from Tahoe. I think it was the first year I was there. But I've stayed with the same group of friends for a few races. And every time before a race, they come back with the same thing and say, we want pizza right before our race. We eat pizza the day before our race. And me personally, I'm like, I don't eat pizza the day before a race. I don't really eat pizza throughout my week. It's just not something I keep in my diet. I'm more of a tacos kind of girl. We went over that. I love my tacos. Um, But also... I love comfort foods like mac and cheese. I'm a buffalo chicken fan. So in 2018, I was out in Tahoe and I was staying with um, the Bro CR house. And I had to go to a Spartan women's meetup. And it started at like seven o'clock. We're in Tahoe. So I'm obviously um, jet lagged in 7 p.m. Tahoe is what, like 10 p.m. in Um, Boston. So I'm exhausted. And I hadn't eaten all day. And I get a text message from Jacob Bosecker. And he's like, we're getting pizza. I texted in caps, no. And he dropped everything right then and there and went sprinting out to another restaurant in Tahoe. He found me mac and cheese. They didn't have buffalo chicken mac and cheese. So he ordered a thing of buffalo tenders or something and put it into the mac and cheese specifically for me so then as we're driving back to the house I could finally eat and it was probably the best buffalo mac and cheese I had ever eaten and that's what I usually like to eat before a race like I want to eat things that are familiar to me my comfort foods because I'm winding down and just thinking okay let's get through to the race So when you're deciding on that pre-race meal, it's not about how many carbs am I eating or, you know, I have to eat a big pasta meal because I'm running this race. Like, no, eat things that make you happy and that you enjoy. For a lot of people, that's pizza. For me, it's not. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to go and eat pizza the day before a race, if that's what works for you, your stomach can handle it, go ahead and eat pizza. Also, pro tip, if you are messing around with bigger meals and you're running a longer race, just for my own personal preference, pack toilet paper because uh, you never know. But um, that's just because when you're eating those bigger meals, you could have some problems, of course. So with all of this meals and nutrition, we have a couple of different comments from people in terms of what to eat. And little mischief from the first comment, she said, one of the things I found out when I'm traveling Uh, is skip looking for restaurants and go to the grocery store for what I'm eating. I make a checklist for things I need since at that time, my brain can't process everything all at once. And that's honestly a great segue into also lodging. So I know I prefer to stay at an Airbnb. Um, A lot of times it's with friends. One of the big advantages to that is having a kitchen there so I can make my own food. I don't have to worry about finding the right restaurants to eat before or after a race, on the way to a race, whatever else. I can buy all of the foods that I need, and then I can take care of my own meals and stay on my specific nutrition plan. 
yeah i'm the same way when it comes to like lodging in an airbnb yeah we can make food um a lot of places you don't have the option of having an airbnb or you can't afford it because sometimes the airbnbs are more expensive than the hotels in the area best thing to do is really meal prep a couple days before get yourself a good cooler and drive and bring that with you and then make sure it's microwavable because a lot of hotels have microwaves but traveling, if you, I am a person who will go to a race and I will drive either right after work on Friday and get to my hotel at like 9 p.m. And when you're driving, especially on the highway, you're not going to have a lot of great food options. It's mostly going to be what we're all used to. It's all fast food. The best thing you can do is what Little Mischief said, which is hit a grocery store. I mean, now we're in COVID era, so I mean, it's a little flexible. We don't know when this stuff's going to open, but a lot of grocery stores nowadays have sandwich shops in there where you can actually get actual food made while you're there. Or if the uh, uh, the buffets over open back up at like, say, a Whole Foods or a Wegmans, they're a place to get actual good quality food instead of sacrificing and having to get like a cheap burger and fries on the way there or eating a Starbucks breakfast sandwich, which I tend to do a good amount of time on the road. It's a good option on the way. Yeah, definitely. And as we talk a little bit more about lodging, we should also just a small comment about what to be eating as we're traveling. If you cannot stay at an Airbnb and you need to stay at a hotel, real life Christine um, says that she will generally scope out on Yelp and Google Maps for meat and potato situations. Um, her favorite find was a rotisserie chicken and a baked sweet potato at a brewery restaurant in Chicago. It was perfect fuel and super yummy. Um, so don't be afraid to go when you know you're going to be traveling. Go to specific um, Yelps and everything else and scope out your nutrition ahead of time. You know, maybe they'll let you put in an order ahead of time so you can say, hey, at six o'clock on Friday night, I'm going to come through and pick this up or whatever else. Um, that's going to keep you consistent and honest. Um, but with our lodging then, I know you and I met through Airbnb. I've stayed predominantly at Airbnbs, but I've also stayed at hotels. Um, one of the biggest advantages in hotel life versus Airbnb, granted, I have spent nights in horrible hotels sharing bets with people, but a lot of times in a hotel versus an Airbnb, um, we will have more we might not have to share a bed with somebody whereas in an airbnb usually one person books a house and then you're trying to fit you know 15 people in a place that sleeps four so then you are you know anticipating sleeping on couches and floors sharing beds and then it goes into the whole big downward spiral of how late is everybody staying up are people drinking the night before and impeding your rest? And you have to start thinking, what works best for you? Are you specifically trying to get a good night's rest? And will the people you're staying with prevent that from happening? Yeah, I've come across that a good amount of time. I spent most of my early OCR career either sleeping in my car or I would sleep on the floor of hotels and a lot of the problems with sharing a room with like four other people is i can't fall asleep when people snore it's something in my head that if you start snoring my brain tries to find a rhythm like 
brains usually do. And snoring doesn't have a standard rhythm. So a lot of times I will just sit up and listen and wait for someone to stop snoring before I fall asleep. And that doesn't happen. Even staying in an Airbnb, which I've done, I mean, many times over the past, I've usually ended up, we would book places where we had enough beds that you could stay in. I mean, I know at the Noram house, well, the room I was in was a bunk room, but everybody there, everybody was there doing the same thing. We were all there to race and not stay up super late. So it comes down to like kind of what friends are you staying with and what friends are you making? Like if you're staying in a party house, maybe that's a lesson to learn from. If you wanted to get up and race Killington the next morning and you stayed at one of the big party houses, just because it was cheap doesn't mean it was worth it. You want to take into effect what is your best option for you. And really it's going to, come down to, in my opinion, how much money are you willing to spend? Are you willing to get yourself a hotel room yourself? Or are you willing to spend the extra money in an Airbnb to have your own room? Yeah, definitely. And that is one of the huge driving factors for people. Like, hey, I've done it for a long time. If I can save a couple bucks by staying in an Airbnb with a bunch of people I'm going to do it. I've stayed at a really shitty motel in Jersey with my friends where, you know, they don't even have carpet on the floors and we fit four, five, six people in there when really we were only supposed to have two. Like at the end of the day, we're not getting good rest there and it's impeding our performance. But if the cost of racing is more important than your performance out on race day, like by all means, go ahead and do it again. I prefer Airbnbs because I have access to the kitchen, I can fully plan. Um, I actually think I end up saving more money because I don't have to go out and buy full dinners at restaurants. I can just do a little bit of grocery shopping. Maybe we have like a family meal before race day um, in the Airbnb. Um, It is a better situation all around for me, but I am very particular about where I allow myself to sleep when in an Airbnb. Yeah, it's uh, if you're looking to save money and you do want to split hotel rooms um, in the past, like I said, I've slept on the floor of hotel rooms because it's usually like sometimes you have friends who are just like, whatever, if you want to sleep on the floor, you can either just give us like a couple bucks or just like we don't really care. It depends on the people you're staying with. And for me, I have spent a lot of my life camping as a kid. So I'm used to sleeping on a harder surface if I need to in a pinch and then get up and you know go hiking the next day so when i was sleeping on the floor and then like racing in the mornings i would manage what i would need to get a good night's rest it's not just like grabbing a pillow and laying on the floor with a blanket i would go out and i would already usually i mean i would i go camping so i already have a sleeping bed bag i would invest i invested in a good sleeping pad uh my suggestion is to get two you can go to walmart and buy a pretty cheap foam sleeping pad, or you can just spend the extra money and get an inflatable one. It's not like an inflatable mattress, but it's smaller and more compact. So you're not packing as much stuff and then get yourself a good pillow. And then some uh, earplugs, major thing, earplugs. That way you're still managing your, your sleep to the best you can. And if you're already used to it, that's going to be the best way to go. Or, I mean, I've shared beds with other dudes you just, if you're both there to race, you just kind of like keep to your own sides and do it that way. That's what I did in Noram 2018. I split a bed with a guy I didn't even know, but I needed to save the money because I wasn't 
make, I, I wasn't making enough at the time to afford my own separate bed. So we both had, we were both getting up and racing competitively in the morning. So we were like, all right, this is my side, that's your side. And that's kind of the way it goes. And that's actually sometimes how you make friends, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm, definitely. So is is there anything else that you can think of that you like to address in terms of race day, race weekend, um, what you like to keep in your toolbox for race weekends? Um, the only thing I would bring up is what I posted today, which is so the any of your pre-race rituals, and it doesn't have to be anything big. I'm not a person who... I'm not a person who's warmed up that much. And so I do tend to, if I'm going to do a race, sometimes I'll jog around a bit. I'll get some stretching. I'll limber up. But a lot of my pre-race ritual is just me getting centered and present and looking to kind of jump into my race brain. So what I do either at the start line, start corral, or even just before when I'm warming up, after I'm loosened up, I kind of crouch down into into a pose and I just sit. And I think usually sometimes I'm listening to music, just kind of getting centered and I'm not really doing anything. I'm not like I'm visualizing the race it's going or I'm saying some sort of prayer or mantra. I'm literally just clearing my head, getting present. And then once I feel it's okay, I jump up, I'm jumping around. I'm in my, I'm now in race mode and ready to go. And a lot of people are just able to walk into the race corral and start racing and If you, whatever works for you at the start of a race, you should fully embrace. If you like the dance before a race, go for it. Whatever you enjoy doing, that's like, whatever you enjoy doing that gets you hyped up to do one of these races, definitely do it because you don't want to show up and always be burned out for a race and not have a way to pull yourself out of whatever funk you're in. Exactly. And ultimately, when we're, getting ready to race, we, we just have to remind ourselves our why. You know, whether we're reciting some mantras or we're listening to our favorite music or throwing on, you know, an article of clothing that helps us remind us why we're doing something. We need to always come back to the why are we doing this. John himself on Instagram commented in terms of just the OCR toolbox in general what goes into it for him are picking out the outfit team jersey shorts compression pants color food snacks for longer distances and how much I could need slash use I've also gotten into wearing something like a banana around my neck or bandana not banana (laughs) around my neck in honor of someone or something a favorite color or a color associated with them so I know um Charles, you wear purple a lot, um, in part because of your mom. A lot of other people wear things that are very symbolic of family, friends, loved ones, just giving them more of that purpose as to why they're doing this. I'll expand on that just so everyone has the full indication. I started wearing purple in 2016. Um, My mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a couple of years before. And it was really just something we didn't want to make it public. So it was really just something in a way of me showing that I stand with her and all the other pancreatic cancer survivors. It's never, I've shared it a couple of times on Instagram, but it's just something that I've always worn. And sometimes I'm not racing in it. Like sometimes I'm in 
jerseys, but I usually have me in case I do want to run in it. And it's a pretty worn out jersey, but I can't find another version of it because Nike stopped making it. But it's really just become a sentimental piece for me to have. And I, because I know a lot of people at first thought it was just because I wanted to wear purple and stand out. It actually just was more of my own representation of what uh, I was running for and what I wanted to be reminded of in times that were hard. So we've talked a great deal about what we need specifically for a race weekend, but there's one big component. And honestly, I would say it's probably the biggest component in an OCR toolbox when we're talking about race preparation. And that is actually how we're physically preparing for a race. So Charles, normally I would ask you, how do you find your training um, programs and your training information for OCR? Of course, I know where you get them from. They come from my head. But before you started training with me or a coach in general, how did you find the workouts to do for your training? And how did you set up your training? So I've gone through a lot of different phases of training. Recently, the past two years, I was doing a lot of ultra, actually not even 2020, 2018, 2019. I was doing a lot of distance training for ultra running. So I was running more, uh, less focus on strength. And I, what I called focused on preparing the body for the beating, which is like, I did a lot of like, like, well, I guess what would be called explosive work with like box jumps. And I didn't do actual, like a lot of squats. Um, and then before that, I mean, I just kind of did what I saw and what I thought would work in races. I never really lifted. I guess I did a lot of what I, I called full body training quotation marks around the whole thing where it's like every workout I'm not focusing on one thing I'm doing a little bit of everything and it wasn't really I mean it kept me again quotation marks in shape I never saw a lot of gains or benefits from it and before that I also did dabble in I did like I don't know two to three months of Yancey camp and that was okay I kind of got worn out by it because it wasn't really it wasn't super catered to regular people and I very had a lot of like very specific equipment to use and it just didn't fit into my schedule like it didn't work for my schedule because I have a job and not a lot of extra free time but that's kind of where I got a lot of my training from okay so you kind of just did whatever came to your head or did whatever you saw other people doing online or in the gym it sounds like yeah i actually did a lot of i guess it would be just a lot of race simulation so i was always always almost redlining a lot of workouts so i guess what was what is the word we're looking for metabolic i don't know <laughs> metabolic conditioning i guess yeah but doing that almost every day every other day I love that you say this now because you know I just made a post about this last week and we've had this conversation mm -hmm. about why we are overdoing metabolic conditioning in obstacle course racing uh -huh. and how we're actually not getting any real benefits in cardio or strength work because we are not able to dedicate enough time to either component. So instead of improving our strength and our cardio we're kind of just burning the candle at both ends killing ourselves risking injury and not seeing the benefits. and that is a big a big discussion that I can save for another day 
um, because I think a lot of people are doing it. And that's, it, it comes down to just lack of knowledge and people seeing the sport of obstacle course racing where we run, do an obstacle, keep running, do an obstacle. Quite literally, that's what metabolic conditioning does, um, where you're doing cardio, strength, cardio, strength. But I'm going to save the whole big rant on that for another time, or you can go and read my post, read the article on Spartan. That is okay. So want to address this, how we determine what it is we're doing for training. Anybody who's been training for anything at any time in any place knows what they like to do in the gym or in cardio. We always gravitate towards the things that we enjoy. Naturally, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We are in a sport about being uncomfortable, but we gravitate towards doing the exercises we like and the things that we're good at because they work for us. When really, we need to be focusing on the things that we're not the best at. When people are putting together their programs, they're going to the community groups and saying, hey, what should I be doing for training? They're going to the race brands. I know, I mean... I've personally been writing workouts for Spartan for four years now. Um, I've written full programs for them. I'm going to say it right out. I do not stand behind generalized programs for racing. Yes, I've written them. The programs I've written, they're good programs. They're going to get you to where you want to be, but they are written for a general person. They are not tailored towards what you are doing. When you ask people online, when you find a general program, when you purchase a cheap program, this is not something that is tailored specifically for you. You are going to want to do what you want to do with it. You are not going to be as committed to doing the things you're not good at. So as people ask individuals online, remember... They're telling you what they like to do. This is what they feel like works for them. Just like everything else we've talked about, what works for one person may not and most likely will not work for another person. So when they say, hey, do this, 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 this is what they like to do. So they are telling you, just do what I do. And that is a really dangerous mentality to get into because then we have people who see workouts that are maybe well over their difficulty level and then they're putting themselves in injury or they're finding you know those cheap or free workouts online they might not even be tailored towards obstacle course racing and if you only do what you like to do you don't even know what to look for for your weaknesses it ultimately comes down to this. We put how much money into this sport? I think there was a Mud Run Guide Facebook post like a week or so ago talking about how expensive obstacle course racing is. I mean, it's hard pressed to find a race for under $100 at this point, unless maybe some locals where you're running open and you're getting in on the early bird special. Like you are putting a decent chunk of money into this sport. You're committing the time to train. Why aren't we putting the money into how we're training? You know, we ultimately have to find our why. Why are we racing? 
if it's to overcome new obstacles, to challenge ourselves, why would we not consistently train to challenge ourselves and to continue to get better? We, we see a lot of people shortchanging their training because they are already spending so much money on racing in general. But, you know, I use the analogy with my clients. I mean, I work at Equinox in Boston. We have a higher-end clientele. And to them, you know, they're driving the Teslas, the BMWs, all of the big fancy cars. I say, okay, you buy a fancy car. You go in knowing that you need to put the money in for your oil change. You're going to get it washed, detailed. You do the maintenance on it because you want to keep that car's value for as long as possible until you go to sell it or whatever else. At the end of the day, we have to live with our body our entire lives. We need to put the money in to maintain it. We're already putting the money in to challenge ourselves and better ourselves through racing. Now, in order for us to stay healthy out on the course, we need to make sure that we are finding the training that is most beneficial for us. So if you're a CrossFitter, I know you want to keep going to CrossFit because you love CrossFit, but we also need to make sure that you're getting out and you are running. If you're a gymnast, a ninja, you need to go do your cardio, but you also need to be focusing on increasing strength outside of grip. If you are only a runner, you need to be getting that strength training in. There are so many components to obstacle course racing, and we see so many people who are good at one thing. I look at obstacle course racing as a jack of all trades. We're not great at anything, but we're good at everything. You look at somebody like Nicole Miracle and VJ Jones, they have been increasing the amount of strength training there working. They're amazing runners. They're spending the times out on the trails. They're rock climbing. They're doing their ninja stuff. They are getting multiple different types of workouts throughout the week. They're not strictly doing metabolic conditioning. They're not strictly running. They're not strictly strength training. They're not strictly rock climbing. They're dabbling in a little bit of everything. Now, I know as middle of the Packers, we don't have the time to commit to this style of training. So we need to really be focusing on where we're going to get our training from to maximize our time. And the best thing to do is to hire a coach. Again, it all comes down to the why though. If you want to continue to improve at this sport, you are going to need to have somebody identify what areas you are still struggling at or need improvement and what areas you're good at. You need to figure out what you need to strengthen and what you need to stretch. Most people cannot do it alone. I know I myself as a trainer, if when I'm programming out my strength training, I video myself doing assessments so I can take a look and say, okay, I'm tight in my thoracic spine and in my traps. I'm tight in my quads but I'm super mobile in my hamstrings. They are possibly turned out a little bit. Um, I, I identify exactly what I need to work on based on my assessments. But then when I 
did not know where to start with running training because I've never ran a day in my life. I hired out a running coach and I still work with a running coach. Most elite athletes work with a coach because they know they cannot do it alone. So then we see so many people that they'll go to group fitness classes. The people that they are training with have maybe ran one or two races, dabbled here and there, but they don't have that background in obstacle course racing. And if you don't have a true understanding of the sport, you can't train somebody specifically for it. I'm not going to go to a football coach to train me for a marathon. And ultimately, we're seeing people that think a general personal trainer is going to give them the tools they need to come out onto the race course. But then also with that, we see people shortchanging their training and saying, hey, I really like this athlete. So I am going to go and I'm going to sign up for this athlete's training plan. Now I'm going to say if it's like a Nicole VJ training plan, it's still not written for you, but it can be scaled for you and it's very well-rounded. I don't know what some of these other training plans look like. I know... I have had a personal conversation with Lindsay Webster who has said, you know, I don't really like strength training. She is now strength training, yes, because she did sign up for High Rocks. But a Lindsay Webster who is running up and down mountains every day, she lives on a mountain, she's riding her bike, she's cross-country skiing, her plan is not appropriate for somebody who's just starting out. We sign on to these plans and think this is what they're doing. So it's going to work for me. But ultimately, these programs are written specifically for them. You need to find a coach or a trainer who can meet you right at your level and then challenge you just a little bit more each time. Ultimately, though, it does come down to your why. What's important to you? If you just want to get out on the course and have some fun, by all means, continue to use training plans from, you know, your gym, from Spartan, from any race brand, that is completely fine. If they meet your specific goals and needs, go for it. But if you want to continue to reach new goals, better yourself, prevent the injuries, it's always best to seek out a professional and get the help. Because those programs are always going to be written specifically for you and they are tailored around your race season. So one of our listeners, Bethany, came in and she had this to say about kind of structuring your race and your goals. She said, I think success looks different for everyone based on their individual goals. But as a competitor, my training programs year round that take into account proper periodization to plan for the OCR season and my A, B, and C races are my essential tools. When it comes down to training and planning out your schedule, uh, how does, from your perspective, how does that kind of work as a trainer program where we as racers can say like, I want to do, say, I want to prioritize Palmerton Super, which is like July time but I have all these other races around. How do you, as a trainer, uh, kind of work to prioritize that and not have them over or under training in in the middle of the season? So with obstacle course racing, there are a lot of people, 
either race one race a year, two races a year, or they dive straight in and they are racing every weekend they possibly can. And there's a lot of room for burnout. Um, Ultimately, obstacle course racing is a sport, just like any other sport. You want to make sure that you are peaking at the right times. So with coaching, a lot of coaches will ask their clients for their race schedule and say, okay, what is your A race? An A race is that number one or those most important races that I want to peak for this. So it's your OCRWC, your Spartan Race World Championships. Um, It's your Killington Ultra. It's that real big race that you are training for. Then you have your B races, which are the important races that you want to do well at, but ultimately, you know, you are training for the big one. And then you have your C race, which is the race you want to run, but it might not mean as much. It's just go out, test your ability, train out on course. So as a coach, when we ask for ABC races, we specifically structure the workouts to periodize. So if you're training through a C race, okay, we're not going to give you a taper. We're not going to pull back your intensity your duration of training during the week or in the weeks leading up to it. With the B race, we might do a little bit of a taper the week of, pull back on the velocity or the volume of your training, but we're not going to give you that full long taper to maximize that peaking. So you'll still come in with a little extra buildup of fatigue. And then with your A race, That's where we say, okay, we are two weeks out from your big race. We are going to pull back on your volume. We're going to really hone in on nutrition. Don't stop your workouts, but take it significantly shorter so you can prioritize your mobility, your rest recovery, because we want you to be able to go into this big race with fresh legs. If you are not working with a coach, you are most likely not thinking in the terms of ABC race. You are most likely just thinking, okay, I have a race on next week, Saturday, and in three weeks, and I'm running a back-to-back race in a month and a half. Okay, I am going to pull back on volume during race week, and that's it. And then race day happens. You go right back into the gym the day after or two days after, and it's right back at it and most likely not changing up much in terms of your training plan. Okay, we're going to pull back once again when it's race week, and then we're going to hit it hard. Whereas in coaching, we can say, hey, you don't have a race for a month. Instead of focusing on sports-specific skills, We are going to work to build up your strength just a little bit more. And then you go into maybe a pre-race programming structure where you focus more on speed, explosiveness, power leading up to, and then the week of the race, pull back on on intensity, taper a little bit, go through the race. And then from there, reevaluate your training goals and decide what do you want to work for for your next training block versus you know, just kind of going about and doing the same things. So ultimately, when it comes down to training, 
just like everything else we've been saying, you need to ask yourself why. And with it, take a look at your commitment level. Are you 10 out of 10 committed to your training goals or your racing goals? If you are, then you should be investing the money into the training. Remember, how much you pay for a trainer directly correlates to how much time they are putting into working with you. We have hourly rates, and when we set up our pay structure, we are dedicating X amount of time based on how much our programs are. So if you see a trainer that is $200 a month, they are dedicating at least two, maybe three hours a month specifically for you. Whereas if you're only paying $30 for a program that somebody has already written for somebody else, they're just cashing in on you and they're not actually giving you the time and attention or I don't know them. Maybe they are giving you some time and attention, but you are not their main concern. Coaches are going to be concerned with the clients that are paying the highest price for the most extensive training. So make sure your training is specific to your needs and your goals. And remember, training should always be a partnership between you and your coach. So feel free to vet that coach. And if things aren't working out, say, hey, it's not working out. Don't ever just sign up for a training program blindly. Talk to the coach and find out how they will help you. So we've gone over the gear to bring to a race, the nutrition you can eat, the shoes you can wear, lodging, travel, training. We didn't cover everything. And you need to make sure you at least create a specific checklist for when you are going through a race prep. So you know you are at least covering all your braces so you're not really like caught off guard when you actually get to race day and you're like, Shit, I forgot my hydration pack for this race. You know, big stuff like that. It really is important to keep your own checklist, but also don't be afraid to ask other people for their checklist. Like if it's your first beast or if it's your first ultra, specifically if you're going to run like a Killington for the first time and you've only ran a flat beast or whatever else, talk to other people and get their insights. At the end of the day, yes, everybody has different things that work for them, but you can never be too prepared for a race. Having too much stuff in your race bin or your race bag or whatever else, that is better than being underprepared. It's not a bad idea to talk to people there, but again, take everything you read online in community groups Hell, take everything we're telling you here with a grain of salt. What works for us probably isn't going to work for you 100% of the time. So always refer back to that why. What is important and why are you doing something? And with that, um, I think that pretty much covers everything under the sun that we can think about for our OCR toolbox. We didn't go over all of the specifics of everything you ever need out on course, but we wanted to make sure to tell you the why and the testing and giving you information on how to specifically pick what works for you. So again, make sure to go and ask people for their checklists. 
in case you ever think that there is something that we didn't cover here that you might need in the future, you know, like the headlamps and whatever else. We gave you a good place to start, at least. Guys, we are releasing a new episode every Thursday on Middle of the Pack podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, everything in our link tree at our Instagram, Middle of the Pack Pod. We are Middle of the Pack Pod on Facebook. We are Mid Pack Pod on the Twitter that we don't actually use. Feel free to hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns. If you have any ideas for episodes or topics you want to cover, feel free to reach out to us. We are always open to taking your insights. Don't forget to also leave us reviews, even though Apple's the only one who does reviews. But yeah, you can follow me um, in all my pre-season content at uh, on Instagram at Sabretooth underscore OCR. That is S-A-B-R-E-T-O-O-T-H underscore OCR. And Megan, where can they find you? I am Meggie B A T C on Instagram. I am also the OCR trainer on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And hey guys, I know I talked a lot about training. I should just give a nice little plug. I have recently revised my training options. So if you are looking to talk about getting started on coaching specifically for OCR, send me a message. I am happy to set up a call with you and just kind of talk to you about what you can be doing to train specifically for your goals. And also I wanted to give a plug for Derek's socials. He is at obstacle underscore activist on Instagram and YouTube. Um, he is currently doing. He is on. It's only obstacle activist on YouTube. There's no underscore. It's whatever people can find it on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> how many of them are, are there? Derek. He is doing a fundraiser for the Leadville 100 for his entry there. Um, I, don't remember what his uh was but i know he posted it on his socials it's on facebook and on his instagram i believe so you can find it there you can donate it's going to a good cause it's not going to his entry it's going to the actual charity he's fundraising for yes 100 percent of the proceeds go directly to the charity we're also going to put a link about it in our facebook page so check that out And that wraps it up for this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening and we'll catch you on the next one.